Exodus chapter 36, starting in verse 1. Bezalel, how's that for a name? And Oholiab, how about that name? Bezalel and Oholiab, and every craftsman in whom the Lord has put skill and intelligence to know how to do any work in the construction of the sanctuary, shall work in accordance with all that the Lord has commanded. And Moses called Bezalel and Oholiab and every craftsman in whose mind the Lord had put skill, everyone whose heart stirred him up to come to do the work. And they received from Moses all the contribution that the people of Israel had brought for doing the work on the sanctuary. And they still kept bringing him freewill offerings every morning. So that all the craftsmen who were doing every sort of task on the sanctuary came, each from the task that he was doing, and they said to Moses, the people bring much more than enough to do the work that the Lord has commanded us to do. So Moses gave command, and word, came, and word was proclaimed throughout the camp, let no man or woman do anything more for the contribution of the sanctuary. So the people were restrained from bringing, for the material they had was sufficient to do all the work and more. Let's pray. Father, in the name of Jesus, I pray over your word today. And Lord, I pray that you would give me the ability to communicate and teach your word and that you would give us all the ability to understand and receive your word. Use your word today to bring transformation to us, to grow us, to strengthen us in our faith, to help us to walk in a way that our life becomes a dwelling place for you. And that's my prayer today in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Y'all can be seated in the house. We have made it almost completely through the book of Exodus over the past several weeks. Y'all have been with us on the journey, and now we are turning to the last several chapters of Exodus where God tells his people to build him a tabernacle. A tabernacle. Now, that's not a word that we use very often these days, but a tabernacle simply means a dwelling place. So if you were an Israelite traveling through the wilderness from Egypt on your way to the promised land, the tent that you lived in, you would call that a tabernacle. You had a tent and your family lived in that and it was a tabernacle. But then God says, I want a tabernacle for myself in the very middle of the camp. Everywhere you go, I want a place for myself. And, and a tabernacle, it's a dwelling place. It is a place where you live. It's a place where you inhabit and where you spend time. And God says, I want you to build me a tabernacle, not necessarily a religious word, but a dwelling place in the middle of your camp. He says, y'all have tabernacles and I'm traveling in the wilderness with you. I want a tabernacle for myself. Build me a dwelling place where I can live and reside among my people. I got a couple of pictures of what artists think that the tabernacle would have looked like. That's an older drawing, but it shows the courtyard of the tabernacle, and then there's a tent in the middle, and this artist put on the top there the, a representation of the cloud of glory that rested on top of the camp during the day. And, and so that's what one artist looked at it. Look at this uh, modern rebuilding of it. That's what they... Uh, we believe, looking at the scripture, what the tabernacle may have looked like. It would have had an outer courtyard, and then it would have had that inner tent there in the center. And there, yeah, there's another one in the center there inside the courtyard where you can look at it. This is what God is talking about when he says, build me a tabernacle in the camp. This is what the image is in our minds. So look at Exodus chapter 25, verse 8. God says to Moses back in uh, Exodus 25, he says, let them make me a sanctuary, 
a tabernacle, a temple, a place that I might dwell in their midst. Exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and all of its furniture, so shall you make it. Today I want to preach a little bit on the, along the lines of building a dwelling place for God. Building a dwelling place for God. You know, God wants to dwell right in the middle of your life. He wants to dwell right in the middle of the camp. He wants to be right in the very center of everything that goes on in our lives, right in the middle of your heart. The tabernacle in Exodus was a way for the people to create and build a dwelling place for God right in the center of their midst. Now notice, he says, he tells the people, I want to live among you. I want a place of my own right in the middle of your life, in the middle of your community. I want you to build me a dwelling place. But he doesn't just say build it and then leave them to do it. Instead, he says build it, but build it exactly as I show you. That's what Exodus 25 verse 8 says. Build it exactly as I show you. And basically, the rest of the book of Exodus for 13 chapters is God giving detailed intimate, intricate instructions and plans, very specific instructions on how to build a dwelling place among his people. He gives them the exact measurements down to the inch. He gives them the exact architectural designs. He gives them the exact materials they're supposed to make every little thing out of. And then he tells them exactly where to put the tabernacle. He says, put it right smack dab in the center of the camp, in the center where everyone lives. Don't put it on the side. Don't put it in the corner. Don't put it outside the camp. I want to be at the very center of your community. Here's what that means. If we want God to show up in our life and act on our behalf and in our life and do good things for us in our lives to bless our lifestyles, to lead us on life's journeys, to transform us for our betterment in life, we don't get to dictate how God does it. He gives specific instructions. He says, I want to dwell with you. I want to be close with you. I want to know you and I want to be be near you and I want you to know me. But we're going to do it on my terms and not yours. We're going to make we're not going to make God fit in our lives where it's convenient. He says, I'm going to put myself right in the center of everything there is about your life. We fit and shape our lives around God, not fit and shape God around our lives. We can't say, God, we want you close, but not too close. So we'll build you a tent, and we'll put you a dwelling place, and we'll put it outside the camp, and when we get in trouble, we'll come and talk to you, and we'll come and find you when we need you. No, that's not how God works. See, God is God, and He is the God who created everything we see and everything that we can't see. He's the God who spoke, and the universe was created. He is the God who spoke, and mountains were raised, and oceans were filled with water. He is the God who shaped mankind out of the earth and breathed the breath of life into the first humans. He 
is the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. He is the God of Israel. He is the God who led them out of slavery, defeated the wicked Egyptian empire, destroyed the armies of Pharaoh, led the children of Israel through the Red Sea on dry ground. He's the God that caused manna to fall from heaven and fed them every day for 40 years. He's the God who spoke to the rock and water began to flow from the rock. He is the God that showed up in fire on the mountain and a thundercloud and in smoke. And that God says, I want to be close to you. I want to dwell with you. I want to, and I don't mean to make you, you don't need to make me an afterthought. I won't stand on the sidelines of your life. I will not just be a consultant that you come and confer with when it's convenient for you. Build me a dwelling place and do it exactly like I tell you to do it and put it exactly where I tell you to put it. And that is the right in the very center of your life, in the center of your family, in the center of your community, in the center of your church. Put it right where I tell you. God is not really Lord of your life until you've allowed Him to be front and center in your life. He will not settle for being a side dish. And He will not settle for being an afterthought. And He will not settle for being second place or second string. He will not settle for being just a consultant we occasionally confer with when we're in trouble. He will only be satisfied when He is the absolute authority. When He leads you out of Egypt, He does so with the expectation that you will continue to let Him lead you when you get to the promised land. So God says, build me a tabernacle, build me a dwelling place, build me a a home and build it exactly the way I tell you to build it and put it exactly where I tell you to put it that I might dwell in your midst and be among you and be your God and you will be my chosen people. Now, as you read the Bible and you grow in your knowledge of the scripture, you will find that really this mobile tent that they built, that the people built this temporary tabernacle it was actually a prophetic symbol of things to come in the future for Israel. Everything about the tabernacle told a story about the coming Messiah and about Jesus. The outer court, put that picture back up there if you would, Justin. The outer court, that white outer court was bordered with a white fence made of white linen curtains and it was a symbol of purity and holiness and then there was only one door into that courtyard and that one door was symbolized that there's only one way that only one savior would come and the only way you get access to God is through that narrow gate through that one door y'all remember hearing about these kinds of things when you read the scripture everything you see is uh, is symbolic there and not only was there just that one door but that one door wasn't made of white linen like the rest of the fence was, that one door was made out of a crimson ribbon of scarlet, scarlet threads and scarlet tapestry. It was a red door. See, that red door symbolized the only way you get access to God is through the blood of Jesus. You get into the courts of God. You get into the presence of God. If you want to, there's only one door in and you've got to go through the blood to get there. There's everything in there was a symbol. Everything in there was, was symbolic of what God was going to do through a Messiah in the future. Everything had to do with the looking forward to one day when the blood of bulls and goats would no longer be necessary to worship God, but God would fulfill the ultimate sacrifice. Now, so we're going to get into that a little bit more next week and talk about everything in the temple. But for now, let's leave it at this. The tabernacle in Exodus was designed by God. 
It was built by the people of Israel as a dwelling place for God, and it prophesied about the future, about a coming Messiah, about the ultimate sacrifice for our forgiveness of sin. Now, also, as you read the Bible, you'll find that often the scriptures speak about our own personal lives as a building project. So Exodus is talking about a building project to build a dwelling place for God in the form of a tabernacle. But as you read, especially in the New Testament, after Jesus has come and the church is moving forward and begins to spread and people are coming to faith in Christ, the Bible will talk about our personal lives as a building project. Jesus will talk about the fool who builds his life on sand. And when the storms come and the winds come, the the house falls apart. But then he'll say the wise man will build his life on the solid rock. Peter in First Ch- Peter chapter 2, verse 5 will say, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up into a spiritual house. And then the Apostle Paul talks about building something for God too. And he's not just talking about our individual lives, but he's talking about us as a community of believers, as a church. And he look, look at 1 Corinthians 3. He says, you, and that you there is plural. He's not talking to one individual. He's talking to the whole church. You, believers, fellowship, are God's building. And according to the grace of God given to me like a skilled master, I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. Let each Each one take care how he builds. In other words, we should all care about building God's church. And I'm not talking about the physical building. I'm talking about building a community of faith where we come together and we build up a dwelling place for God because if this building burnt down tomorrow, we could all still gather together and we could come together and God would still show up because it's not about the building. It's about the people in the building. You are God's building. Here's the point. Even though as followers of Christ, In the 21st century, we don't have a tabernacle in the wilderness where we go and worship God. We don't have to travel to Jerusalem to worship in a temple. We are still called to build a dwelling place for God in our lives. Our personal lives ought to be God's dwelling place ought to be built up as a dwelling place for God. The Bible tells us that your body is a temple, is a tabernacle of the Holy Spirit. In other words, the physical body that you're sitting in right now, it is a dwelling place for the Holy Spirit. When He comes to Christ, when we come to Christ, the Holy Spirit dwells within us and we become God's dwelling place on the earth. We all become little mini tabernacles that are portable and movable and everywhere we go, we carry the presence of God with us. Our families and our homes ought to become dwelling places for God. We ought to raise our families and our children to build our lives with God at the very center of everything we do. Not just making room for God on Sundays because that's what good people do. And not just making room for God on the weekends when it's convenient to come to church. Not just making room for God when there isn't a ball game going on or when there isn't something more important doing. But no, building a place for God in our family and our homes at the very center of our lives where we build our families and our lives exactly how God tells us to. And then also, finally, the church ought to be a dwelling place for God. The church, and again, I'm not talking about necessarily the building, although we're thankful for it because there's millions of Christians all over the world that they're meeting under a tree today and they're meeting under uh, just a bridge somewhere today. We have a beautiful building and air conditioning, praise the Lord. And finally, the church ought to be a dwelling place, though. For we 
all as followers of Jesus, we're called to obey Jesus, to follow the Holy Spirit, and to build God's church and expand God's kingdom, not how we want to, but exactly how he tells us to. Listen, we're not called to build a trendy church. We're not called to build a cool church. We're not called to build a young church or an old church. We're not called to build a contemporary church or a traditional church. We're not called to build a progressive church or a conservative church. We're not called to build a democratic church or a Republican church. We're not even called to build an American church. We are called to obey Jesus, empowered by the Holy Spirit, and work with Him as He builds His church. We're called to build a church that marches to the front lines of ministry and gathers together regularly for worship and devotes ourselves to the scripture and makes our gatherings a dwelling place for God's spirit where God moves and the spirit operates and darkness is pushed back and the yoke of sin is broken and Satan is cast out and lives are changed and bodies are healed and the dead are raised and the reach of his kingdom is expanded because we're building a dwelling place for God. I want my life. I want to build my family. I want to build this church. I want to build His church with God at the very center, with my life as a dwelling place for God, with my home as a dwelling place for God, with my church family as a dwelling place for God. And if we want that, we have to let God dictate and put it at the center of everything that we do. Let me take it even a step further. If you need a friend... If you're looking for a friend who's going to sharpen you, encourage you, and make life better for you, find you some friends who have built their lives with God at the center and made their lives a dwelling place for God. If you're looking for a business partner, someone to work with, look for a partner who has built his or her life and his or her business around God at the center. If you're looking for a husband, you're looking for a wife, Before you say I do, actually before you even get close enough to think about saying I do, you need to ask yourself, has this man or has this woman built their lives around their relationship with God at the very center, not on the sidelines? Now, that's all introduction. I want you to look at these things. They built a a place for God in the middle of their camp. And I want to watch and look at the scripture. How did they build it? Number one, they built under the leadership of the Holy Spirit. They built under the leadership of the Holy Spirit. Look at verse chapter 35, verse 30. It says, Then Moses said to the people of Israel, See, the Lord has called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur of the tribe of Judah. And he has filled him with the Spirit of God with skill, with intelligence, with knowledge, and all craftsmanship, to devise artistic designs, to work in gold and silver and bronze, and cutting stones for setting and in carved wood for work in every skilled craft. God says, I've got a plan and a vision for exactly how I want you to build my dwelling place in the middle of your camp. And it's an intricate design and it's going to take some architectural knowledge and it's going to take some artistic skill. So I've chosen a man named Bezalel and I have filled him with my Holy Spirit and I have given him everything he needs to know how to build what I have given you. Look at this, building a life centered on a relationship with God requires inspiration with from and cooperation with the Holy Spirit. 
When God wanted to establish for himself a dwelling place in the middle of the camp, in the middle of his people, he, he had a precise plan. He had detailed blueprints and God was the architect and he gave the vision to Moses who wrote the vision down. But Moses wasn't the general contractor. He wasn't the one actually uh, overseeing the project. The Bible says God chose this man Bezalel to be the job foreman and to oversee the contra- the overseeing contractor of the work. And it says that he filled this man with the Holy Spirit and he gave him intelligence and knowledge and skill and artistic instinct to make what God had envisioned a reality. So on the mountain in God's presence, God gave Moses the prophetic vision and the blueprint for the tabernacle. But down in the valley in the camp, God's spirit was poured out on a man named Bezalel. And he was given the practical skills and the knowledge and how to accomplish the task. And how many of you know that, that names mean something in the Bible? That when God gives someone a name, it, it usually has meaning attached with it. That name, Bezalel, it means under the shadow of God. That's what his name means. He's, this is a man who lived under the shadow of God. His name points to the fact that Bezalel was a man who pursued a lifestyle underneath the shadow of God's presence and covered by God's Spirit. His name speaks to the fact that this man was someone who didn't seek out the limelight or fame or popularity, but instead he found the quiet places of solitude with God and in God's presence, and he was seeking out God's Spirit. And this was a man who spent time in the place of prayer. He was filled with the Holy Spirit because he pursued the Spirit, because he sought out the Spirit. He spent time in the shadow of Almighty God. This is a man that while Moses was up on the mountain cloud and the cloud speaking to God, Bezalel got up as close to that mountain as he could and got under the shadow and got as close to and God began to pour out inspiration and skill and knowledge and wisdom. And from the place of prayer, from the place in the shadows of God's presence, God gave wisdom, God gave knowledge, God gave ability that he didn't have on his own. I came by to tell somebody this morning, God has a vision for your life. He has a vision for your future. He has an exact blueprint for the plans that he has for your life. And he has a vision for building you up and growing you into a life that becomes a dwelling place for God in your family and your home. And not only does he have the vision of what he wants to accomplish in your life, he has the practical skill. He has the knowledge. He has the wisdom. He has each step you need to take to make it a reality. And if you and I can get like Bezalel and get in the shadows of God and get in his presence and seek God and travail in the place of prayer until God gives the breakthrough. God will pour out his spirit. He will lead us by his spirit. He will show us and allow ourselves to be uh, filled with his spirit. And he will give us knowledge and he will give us wisdom and he will give us insight and he will give us skill and he will teach us what we don't know and he will do what we can't do. And we can build something for God, not because we're special, but because his spirit has been poured out on his people. He, they built under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, under the leadership of the Holy Spirit. Number two, they built with their contributions. Look at verse 30, chapter 36 again, verse 3. It says, they received from Moses all the contribution uh, from the people of Israel for doing work on the sanctuary. They still kept bringing him free will offerings every morning so that all the craftsmen who were doing every sort of task on the sanctuary came and they said to Moses, the people bring much more than enough. 
for doing the work that the Lord has commanded us to. So Moses gave the command and a word was proclaimed. Let no man or woman do anything more for the contribution of the sanctuary. So the people were restrained for all for the material they had was sufficient to do the work and more. These people gave more than enough to make sure that the sanctuary, that the tabernacle could be built. And listen, our lives become centered around God when we ensure that nothing we have is off limits to Him. Our lives become built around God and become a dwelling place for God when we say there is nothing in my life, God, that's off limits to you. Everything I have is yours. We create a dwelling place for God in our lives when we truly make Him Lord over everything. Everything we own. Everything we buy, everything we use, everywhere we go, every child we raise, every marriage we enter into, every church service, every business meeting, every financial decision, every investment, it's all His. Is He the Lord over everything in our lives or not? And when God got ready to make a dwelling place for Himself among His people, He called for an offering. He asked the people to contribute. Look at Exodus chapter 35. He said, Moses said to the congregation, this is what the Lord has commanded. Take from among you a contribution to the Lord. Whoever is of a generous heart, let him bring the Lord's contribution. Gold, silver, bronze, blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen, goat's hair, tanned ram skins, goat skins, acacia wood, oil for the light, spices for the anointing oil and onyx stones and stones for setting for the effort in the breastpiece. Now we might at first look at this and think, wow, God, that's pretty demanding. You know, in our day and time, the pastor just, they pass the plate around, and I don't tell you what to put in. Nobody does that. That's crazy, right? To say, actually, there's specific things that you have that you need to put in the offering day. Y'all would run me out of here if I started doing that every Sunday. But God, if we can look at it, and he didn't just tell him to bring an offering. He said exactly what to bring. I know what you've got in your house, and I want you to bring it. And it's not cheap stuff, if you'll notice, that he's asking for. He's asking for the best stuff. The best stuff in the house. The best metals. The best fine linens. The best animal skins. The best oil and spices. That is so unfair of God to expect them to bring such expensive, elaborate gifts to the house of God. Let me ask you something. Where did a bunch of homeless slaves get all that stuff in the first place? How did slaves with no property and no prospects for the future have any gold, silver, bronze, linen, livestock? How did they have any of it? I'll tell you this. They didn't get it in the desert. They didn't just show up in the wilderness and find a bunch of gold and silver and linens and all that. If you want to know how they got it, you got to go back a few weeks in the story. Remember when we were preaching and we were talking about those plagues of Egypt and that last plague, the 10th plague, where the firstborn of each son in every household in Egypt died and the blood was applied to the doorposts and the death angel passed over Israel, but death came to every house in Egypt. And just before Israel left town and went to the Red Sea, check this out, look at this verse, Exodus 12, the people of Israel had also done as Moses told them, for they had asked the Egyptians for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing, and the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians so that they let them have whatever they asked for. 
Where did slaves get a bunch of gold and silver and precious linens and precious stones? They got it from God through the hands of the enemy. Through the hands of their old slave masters. God blessed them with riches as they left out of slavery. So when you're in the wilderness and God says, make me a dwelling place. And oh, by the way, I've already made sure that you have everything you need to build it. And you don't just have enough to build for me. You're going to have more than enough that I'm going to have to stop you giving. So you still get to keep some of it. And when you realize that without God, I wouldn't have anything. And without God, I wouldn't have two nickels to rub together. And without God, I wouldn't have the shirt on my back. And without him, I'd still be making bricks with no straw back in Egypt. Now, all of a sudden, it is not an effort and it is not a burden to contribute to the house of God. Now, all of a sudden, it is a pleasure to give. Look what he has done for me. I can give something back to him. And the people wanted so desperately to be a part of what God was doing in their community that they had to turn them away because they gave too much. It was a joy to give to God. It was a pleasure. And when I realized the stuff that I hold in my hands, the stuff that I have in my bank account, it's not really mine because I've surrendered everything over to God and it all belongs to him. And since it's his, he can have whatever he wants. And now all of a sudden it's easy to give from God because I've learned he can make bread fall from heaven if I'm hungry. He can make water flow from a rock if I'm thirsty. And when I'm poor, he can make the enemy give me the money I need. That's how God works. Let me tell you, this isn't really a sermon about finances. We've, we've done those sermons before. That's not really the point. This isn't a money sermon. This is a heart sermon. This is an attitude sermon. This is a God has been too good for me to not contribute to what God is doing in my life, in my community, in my church. And I just want to take a minute to brag on Believers Fellowship for a minute. Y'all, it is evident that you have caught on to this kind of thinking. We, we didn't know it in February of 2020 when we began to... Uh, uh, pursue aggressively paying off the debt at this church that just a few weeks later the church would have to shut down from in-person giving for eight weeks that our attendance would be cut in half when we came back but we didn't know all that but in February of 2020 we set a goal we said there's $38,000 left on the note on this building and we want to pay it off in 20 months we are just three months away right now and I did the math on Friday Miss Carol and this is how much we have left to go seven thousand and nine dollars $7,009. And Miss Carol, that $9 has aggravated me. So I put a $10 check in the offering today for the building fund. So now we're at $6,999. Hallelujah. God is, look at what God has done. You guys have given, y'all have given sacrificially in the middle of a global pandemic, in the middle of a recession, in the middle of uncertainty. And I just want to prophesy today because you have been faithful to give in the middle of such, term, such turmoil and because you have been faithful to build a place for God in your local church over the last 20 months, I'm prophesying over you that God is going to bring you out of COVID-19 better than he brought you in. Years from now, we're going to look back. The ones in this room right now, we're going to look back years from now and look at 2020 and 2021 and say, that was weird, but look what God did. God brought us out and he brought us out healthier. He brought my body out healthier. He brought my spirit out healthier. He brought out my church out healthier. God is going to make Egypt pay for building the house of God in my life, in my family, in my home, and in the church. Now, we didn't just, this is what God's going to do. I believe it. Now, they didn't just contribute their belongings. Take a look at this. Number three, they built a place for God. 
with their time and their talents. Watch this, Exodus 36, verse 2. Moses called Bezalel and Oholiab, and every craftsman in whose mind the Lord had put skill, and everyone whose heart stirred him up to come to do the work. Take a look at this now. God's the architect. He's designed it. He's given Moses the blueprint. Bezalel is the general contractor, but there were maybe hundreds, maybe thousands of workers who came and gave of their time and their talents to make sure that a dwelling place for God was built. Some of y'all a minute ago when I was talking about giving of your contributions, you sat back and you thought that's good for them. They had gold and silver to give and I don't have any gold or silver to give. First of all, if your attitude is, I'll give after I feel like I have enough, you'll never give and you'll never have enough. But the point is, we don't just give with our wallets. We don't just give with our bank accounts. This is just part of my life. This isn't my whole life. We don't just give with what we have in material possessions, but there is value in you and what you can contribute with your time and your talents. Not everyone has a lot of wealth to give. We're not all going to be billionaires. Not everyone's going to have everything to give, but everyone has something to give. And if you don't have money, have you got talent? Have you got some talent or skill that you can contribute to building the house of the Lord in your community? Are you good at carpentry? Well, you build something. Are you a good cook? Well, you cook something. Are you a good conversation partner? You get here early and you meet people at the door and you make them feel welcome. Are you good at washing dishes? Wash dishes. Are you good at taking pictures? Be a photographer. Do something to help out. Do something to build something for God. And you say, I don't have any money to give. Well, what talents do you have to give? Now, you might say, I don't feel like I have any talent but what time do you have because if you've got the time I'll find someone with the talent and they'll teach you how to do what they do so we can find something for you because everyone has something now if you're one of those salty saints that's sitting back and say I don't have any money I don't have any time and I don't have any talents well we might have figured out why you don't have any money <laughs> find the time learn a talent you might make some money God is not interesting interested and saving slaves out of slavery just to live the rest of their lives in laziness. Listen, this might be the flesh in me. I don't have much patience for lazy people. I, I try my best to be compassionate and to care about people who are less fortunate, but when I see well-abled, well-bodied, capable people sit back they don't work. They always consume, but they never contribute. I, I just lose patience with that. I don't have the patience for it. I like what the Apostle Paul in 2 Thessalonians 3 said. He says, if anyone's not willing to work, let him not eat. That's not a popular verse these days, but now that's not... He, I want to be clear. Paul, several other places, says take care of the widow, take care of the orphan, take care of the ones that can't provide for themselves, but if you can provide for yourself and you just won't, you can go hungry. And it goes the same way in church. I'm your pastor and I love you, but I don't have much patience for lazy church people. 
I understand that if you're new in church and you're figuring things out and figure out where you fit in and how, how is this your church or not, that at some point, though, when you have a home church and this is your home church that feeds your spirit, that takes care of your family, that builds you up, that prays for you, but you haven't found somewhere to use your time and your talents to serve the church, listen, don't be surprised when nothing gets built that lasts in your life because you haven't contributed with what you have in your hand. I don't have patience for people that's going to sit back and say, I'm going to complain but I'm not going to contribute. I'm going to complain, but I'm not going to be here. I'm going to complain, but I'm not going to volunteer. Listen, God says if you're not going to work, you don't get to eat. You don't get to be at the table if you're not going to contribute to the conversation. So listen, find ways in your, not just in the church, in your family. Find ways in your community, in your workplace, in your, in your personal life to use what you've got to build up a dwelling place for God in your life. Get involved. I don't just sit back and wait for God to do it. He's given you everything you need to build it, but you have to build. You have to cooperate. You have to get your hands dirty. You've got to put some skin in the game because if you don't, you will always sit back on the sidelines and wonder, why doesn't God ever do anything for me? He has done everything for you. He already did it on the cross. He paid the price for everything you need. The scripture says in him, you have everything you need to live a godly life. You have everything you need to build up a life that is fit for a king. Why? Because he has paid the price for you, but you've got to work with them. You've got to put some skin in the game. They built with their time and their talents. One more and I'm done. They built a dwelling place by teaching the next generation how to build. Exodus 35. Moses said to the people of Israel, the Lord has called Bezalel, son of Uri, son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah, and filled him with skill and intelligence and knowledge and all craftsmanship. But look at verse 34. And he has inspired him to teach both him and Oholiab, the son of Ahisamach, of the tribe of Dan. He is the Holy Spirit, gave Bezalel the skill, the knowledge, and the wisdom and he inspired him to teach someone else. God is the architect. Moses gave the blueprint. Bezalel is a general contractor filled with the Holy Spirit to know how to put, uh, put nail and hammer to the blueprints and make something happen and make something be built. But he wasn't just skilled to build. He was inspired by the Holy Spirit to teach the next generation to be temple builders. The tabernacle that Moses directed the people to build in the wilderness would become the central place of worship for all of Israel. And it would, take, it, would, it would be their central place of worship until King Solomon built a permanent temple in Jerusalem. That's a long time. I did the math. This tent lasted for 647 years. This was where the people of Israel came to worship God on a daily basis. Long after Moses died, long after Aaron died, long after Joshua died, long after Bezalel died, the people of Israel still gathered in this tabernacle to worship God. Now, don't you think that after 647 years, something needed to be fixed every now and then? Something would need to be replaced. Something would need to be repaired. They would need some upkeep. And what if Bezalel had died with all the skill and knowledge and wisdom the Holy Spirit gave him, but for 600 years no one else knew how to do it? 
What if he hadn't passed on to the next generation? This is how you build this piece of the tabernacle. And this is how this fits together. And this is how you fix this if it breaks. And this is how you put this together and make sure that it goes like this. He gave instructions to the next generation of how to keep the temple up. How to keep the tabernacle functioning. And what if everything God did for Bezalel in his life died when Bezalel died? What if everything that God did in in Bezalel's a ministry died when Bezalel died. Eventually, that tabernacle would have gotten old. It would have fallen apart. It would have disintegrated. But God knew there would be a need for something that would last. And if you want something to last, you've got to be multi-generational. You've got to teach the ones who didn't, who weren't here, who come after you. How do you build a dwelling place for God in your family, in your personal life, in your community, in your church? You build it by teaching the next generation how to be temple builders too. I want to be a church that we don't just know how to have a dwelling place for God and how to have an atmosphere of the Holy Spirit, but our children know how to build an atmosphere for the Holy Spirit to move, where our children know how to pray through, where our children know how to lay hands on the sick and see them recover, where our children know how to pray and prophesy and preach and, and, and evangelize and reach their world and their sphere of influence with the gospel. I want to make sure that what I do on this earth lasts beyond me. And so I have to build and teach the next generation how to build. You build a dwelling place for God, number one, led by the Spirit. Number two, by contributing everything you have to the work God's doing. By number three, giving it, giving of your time and your talents. And number four, you build it by teaching the next generation how to keep building. Pastor Katie, would you come and would you stand with me this morning? God has called us to build a dwelling place for Him in our personal lives, in our families, in our homes, in our church, and in our community. And it can't just be a couple of us. You know the statistic that we all, church folks always talk about that 80% of the work gets done by 20% of the people and, you know, not everyone contributes and people get burned. I'm thankful that. I don't think that statistic's true at Believer's Fellowship. I'm thankful for that. But listen, if we want to build something that lasts for God in our community, if we want to build something that lasts for God in our church and in our families, it takes all of us. It takes all of us. Look at what God has given us, and hey, it all belongs to God. Look at the time and talents that you have. Oh, it's God's. I'll give it to God. I'll give my time and talents to God. And somehow, when you let the Holy Spirit lead you, when you make nothing off limits in your life to God, when you give of your time and talents to God and you start investing in the next generation, somehow God takes care of you too. And you end up with more than enough. That's what they had. They had more than enough because they gave everything to God. And he said, that's enough. Now the rest is yours. You've got more than enough.